Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening, everyone. We've got a big show for this Friday night. In a little while, I'll be talking with former Obama speechwriter John Favreau. And CNN anchor Don Lemon is here crossing the networks to talk about his new book on race in America. And Matt Gates is facing mounting pressure. The first Republican lawmaker has called on him to resign as the House Ethics Committee says that it has opened an investigation into his conduct. There are also brand new details about the federal investigation. But we begin the readout in a Minneapolis courtroom where two weeks into the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin, the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy of George Floyd took the stand. Dr. Andrew Baker's autopsy report last year ruled Floyd's death a homicide, that Floyd died because his heart and lungs stopped functioning while he was being restrained by police, something he reiterated today. In my opinion, the, the law enforcement subdual restraint and the neck compression was just more than Mr. Floyd could take. The defense, however, is overlooking that finding and focusing on other contributing factors from the report, like Floyd's heart disease and past drug use. Dr. Baker testified that while those things may have played a role in Floyd's death, the ultimate cause is not in doubt. In fact, he said he saw nothing wrong with Floyd's heart during the autopsy. Did you take a photograph of Mr. Floyd's heart still intact? No, I did not. Uh, would you tell the jury um, why not? I don't normally photograph organs that appear to be for perfectly normal. Did you find any previous damage to his heart muscle? No, Mr. Floyd had no visible or microscopic previous damage to his heart muscle. Mr. Floyd's use of fentanyl did not cause the subdual or neck restraint. His heart disease did not cause the... Um, the subdual or the neck restraint. The prosecution appeared concerned ahead of Baker's testimony, given that his report made no mention of oxygen deprivation, which the prosecution has been pressing home to the jury as the cause of Floyd's death. They called numerous medical experts to testify ahead of Baker to make that case, including a forensic pathologist this morning who helped train Dr. Baker, Dr. Lindsay Thomas. And she explained that it wasn't surprising that the low level of oxygen did not show up in the autopsy report. The primary mechanism was asphyxia or low oxygen. And it basically is Mr. Floyd was in a position uh, because of the subdual restraint and compression where he was unable to get enough oxygen in um, to maintain his body functions. Are the findings on autopsy uh, that uh, suggest low oxygen as a cause of death? No, there's nothing on autopsy that shows low oxygen. Uh, there's no test that could be done for low oxygen on autopsy? No. Dr. Thomas added that she saw no evidence that George Floyd would have died that night except for the incident with those police officers, a crucial point. Now, at the end of the trial's second week, we have now heard from 35 witnesses, including eyewitnesses to Floyd's death, Chauvin's former police colleagues, including the police chief, and a number of medical experts. The prosecution is expected to rest its case 
early next week. Join me now, Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor, and Dr. Bernard Ashby, a vascular cardiologist. And lucky for us, we have a cardiologist in-house tonight. Dr. Ashby, I want to start with you on this because, you know, leading into uh, Dr. Baker's testimony, it feels like what the prosecution was doing was sort of setting up to almost pre-butt what he found in that autopsy to say, despite what's in that autopsy that did not mention lack of oxygen, uh, what you really need to focus on is the fact that all the oxygen was taken away from Dr. Floyd. I want to let you listen then to what they actually got from Dr. Baker, which seemed to me um, to just reinforce their case. Take a listen. My opinion remains unchanged. It's what I put on the death certificate last June. That's cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement, subdual restraint, and neck compression. That was my top line then. It would stay my top line now. And so if we look at the other contributing conditions, those other contributing conditions are not conditions that you consider direct causes. Is that true? They are not direct causes of Mr. Floyd's death. That's true. They're contributing causes. And in terms of manner of death, you found then, and do you stand by today, that the manner of death for Mr. Floyd was, as you would call it, homicide. Yes, I would still classify it as a homicide today. So this is important, Dr. Ashby, and if you could just re-explain this uh, to us in, in layperson's terms. If someone is, uh, is not getting air going through their body, that means their heart can't pump, and therefore, it, does it make sense to you that on the death certificate or on the autopsy report, it says they died because their heart stopped working? Joy, thanks for having me. And Finally, get a chance to use my models here in the background that I always have. So this is a heart, right? And the defense team uh, made a lot of uh, hay about the coronary artery disease that he had, which is related to the blocked blockage of these arteries here or the narrowing. Actually, they weren't actually blocked. And basically, what what George Floyd had was, you know, this disease, which is you know plaque here in the arteries uh, in one artery here and, and some of the arteries had blockages about that level. And so essentially what the defense was doing was what we call reaching, uh, meaning that they were, they were grasping for straws to find out some other way that he could have died. I mean, this is no different than him being shot and bleeding out. His threshold for tolerating a gunshot wound is lower because he has underlying comorbidities. And that's essentially what you saw here, where you had a knee to the neck and he was not getting oxygen. He had a knee, I'm sorry, knee to the back and knee to the neck where he was not getting oxygen. And in addition to that, he had a knee to the, to the coronary, I'm mean, sorry, the carotid artery here, which could have also had that plaque that I mentioned there and lowered, lowered his threshold for, um, you know, anoxic brain injury. So essentially the defense team was just trying to come up with anything else other than the fact that what Dr. What, uh, Derek Chauvin did contributed to the death or I should say caused the death of George Floyd. And, and absolutely. And it does seem, Paul, because they, they don't need to convince all of these jurors that it wasn't solely what, um, you know, then Officer Chauvin did. They just need to convince one and dang the jury. Right. They just need to convince one of them that they don't want to go along with it and raise doubt maybe in enough of them to try to get him free of this crime. The other thing that they really tried to do was to make it sound like George Floyd was having his own drug overdose. And it's almost as if the police officer just happened to come upon him as he was having a drug overdose and Derek Chauvin laying on top of him and putting a total of 91 pounds between the three officers on his back. That would that had nothing to do with it. He really just was having a drug overdose. Uh, let me let you listen now to Dr. Thomas. Uh, this is Dr. Lindsay Thomas, a forensic pathologist who testified in advance of Dr. Baker. Take a listen. 
Usually drug overdoses are accidental unless there's evidence of intent, in which case it would be suicidal. So if uh, the manner of death here has been determined to be homicide, uh, does that, in your opinion as a medical examiner, rule out a death by accidental drug overdose? Yes. I mean, th th that was really definitive, Paul. Yeah, so Joy, prosecutors don't have to prove that Chauvin's actions were the only reason that Mr. Floyd died, right. just that what Chauvin did was a substantial factor. And the dispute between the prosecution and the medical examiner is about asphyxia. It's the prosecution's lead theory. And so far, all of the other medical experts, including Dr. Thomas, have supported that. The defense wants to act like the medical examiner and the prosecutor are in this big beef about what really killed George Floyd, but it's really not all that. But if the defense can blow up the tension between Baker and the other medical experts like Dr. Thomas, they hope that they can create reasonable doubt. They would say to the jury, if these well-qualified medical experts can agree on what killed Mr. Floyd, that's reasonable doubt and you should acquit Chauvin. And, but Dr. Ashby, you watched this trial today. I did not see a whole lot of difference between what Dr. Thomas and Dr. Baker were saying. Did you? I didn't see any difference, actually. I mean, to, to the point that was just made, I mean, yes, there, there were contributing factors, but the consensus was ultimately the cardiopulmonary arrest, which is something that we all end up with, right? When you pass away, your heart's going to stop, you're going to stop breathing. Right. And, and that was an issue where they were conflating that with a heart attack. But no, there was no difference whatsoever. And, you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, uh, Derek Chauvin definitely caused the death of George Floyd. And just to be clear, Dr. Ashby, for just a moment, since you are the expert here, you are the, car the cardiologist uh, on resident with us here. If you're mm -hmm. lying on your stomach, because one of the things that the defense tried to do was to say lying prone is not inherently dangerous, right? As if he was just laying there on the beach. I mean, I think at one point they even made an analogy of laying on the beach which is insane because he wasn't laying on the beach and these yeah. theoretic, but it, but it, it, it is dangerous to lie prone on your stomach with like 90 pounds of weight on you, pressing you down. Right. Agreed. And the pulmonologist, Dr. Tobin uh, said as much uh, yesterday, essentially what you had was this, this gentleman on the ground in a prone position with his hands tied behind his back with a knee on his back, which limited his tidal volumes or his lung volume. So his ability to get oxygen, was severely compromised. And as a result, uh, that led to his ultimate demise. And I, I feel like Dr. Tobin's uh, testament was so powerful, Paul, that even Dr. Baker kept referring, well, you know, I would ask a pulmonologist that. I would ask a pulmonologist that. Well, you know, that would go to a pulmonologist. Well, who's the pulmonologist? Dr. Tobin, who was so effective yesterday. What do you, what do you anticipate the kind of closing to look like? Because it does look like the prosecution is wrapping up their case. Do you think they've left anything out um, in terms of the way that they've tried to argue this case? Uh, the prosecution has to prove that Chauvin used excessive force. They've had 10 police officers say that what Chauvin did violated his training and it violated the criminal law. They have to prove that what Chauvin did caused the death of Mr. Floyd. They have three medical experts who've all testified to that point. The defense is throwing every cause of death but George Chauvin at the medical experts. Maybe it was a meth overdose. Maybe it was a phenytoin overdose. Maybe it was Mr. Floyd's heart condition. Maybe it was COVID-19. But the experts are resolute. 
No, defense attorney, Mr. Nelson, it was your client, George Floyd, that caused, it was your client, uh, Derek Chauvin, that caused Mr. Floyd's death. Yeah, and Dr. Ashby, they keep using theoreticals, right? They keep saying, you know, well, if you found him in his house and, and, and he was in that condition, you'd think it was a drug overdose. I mean, if you'd found him, you know, at the beach. Um, but you didn't find him on the beach. You didn't find him at, at his house. You found him underneath Derek Chauvin. So I, I, I find that odd. I know for you as a, as a man of science, did you find it strange how many times they tried to basically pick George Floyd's body up and put it in other locations where it was not? Uh, again, this goes back to the reaching uh, that I'm, I mentioned. They were just grasping at straws. I mean, the video is compelling in of itself. And they, they're trying to basically get away from that. And this one other point was, at one point, another officer checked his pulse. He did not have a pulse yet. Right. Derek Chauvin maintained his knee on the neck. And so at that point, there he was not a threat and he didn't have a pulse. They are, they are obligated to render aid at that point, and they did not. And just very quickly, before I let you go, Dr. Ashby, if someone does not have a pulse, three minutes from that point, is it generally possible to revive them? Because they're also trying to make the case, well, they were just holding him, waiting for the ambulance. But if you haven't had a pulse for at least three minutes, doesn't that essentially mean you have died? Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, it, it really depends. Everyone has a different threshold. And essentially... You have, you know, what we what we describe as um, a meaningful neurological recovery. And so depending on how old you are, your underlying comorbidities, the chances of them not only bringing back your, your heart rhythm, which you were actually able to do with George Floyd, but it's chances of making a full recovery uh, right. becomes less and less over time. So, you know, we, we can't answer that. But suffice it to say is that, is, is that if they would have provided aid or CPR at that time, his chances yeah. of surviving would have been much higher. And they clearly did not. Uh, Paul Butler, thank you very much. Dr. Bernard Ashby with the uh, model to make sure we get a full education. I love this. This is my favorite thing. I'd love to get a good education uh, on this show. Thank you so much for doing that. Really appreciate it. You guys have a wonderful weekend. All right. Still ahead on the readout. New developments in the ever widening Gates sex crimes investigation, including the first Republican lawmaker to call for Gates's resignation. Plus, you've heard about the progressive caucus, right? Well, it looks like a new caucus of conservative Dems is forming. We're calling it the No Progress Caucus. And they're prime candidates for tonight's absolute worst. And later on, CNN ain't 
filmmaker Don Lemon will be here to talk about his best-selling new book and how learning more about his own family history has shaped his views on race in America. And Don will tell us who he thinks won the week. The readout continues after this. Last night, Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois became the first Republican lawmaker to publicly call on Congressman Matt Gates to resign following the revelation that he's the subject of a federal sex crimes investigation. And now the House Ethics Committee says it's opened an investigation of its own, citing a laundry list of potential misconduct that's been alleged publicly. Gates's office responded in a statement saying these allegations are blatantly false and have not been validated by a single human being willing to put their name behind them, unquote. However, the mounting scrutiny is already prompting defections from Gates's staff. As The New York Times revealed last night, a second senior aide resigned last Friday. This time it's his legislative director, a job that's considered among the highest ranking of any congressional office. According to one of three sources cited by The Times, that aide told associates that he was interested in writing bills, not working at TMZ. This comes after 10 straight days of breaking news on this probe, which appears wider in scope than we first understood. Last week, based on the public reporting to date, we're now aware, since last week, um, on the basis of the public reporting to date, we're now aware of four different avenues of investigation. Whether Gates had sex with a 17-year-old minor, whether he paid for sex with women who were recruited online, whether he accepted paid escorts in exchange for political access or favors during a trip to the Bahamas, and the latest line of inquiry is focused on a reported conversation about running a spoiler candidate in a Florida state Senate race. That last aspect of the probe was reported last night by The New York Times, which notes that the line of inquiry in question is in its early stages. Gates has denied the conduct under investigation. And tonight, he's rearing his head again after a period of relative silence since that weirdly uncomfortable Tucker Carlson interview in which he seemed to try to drag the Fox News host into the mire with him. As we speak, the embattled congressman is at the former president's Florida golf club, delivering remarks to the pro-Trump group Women for America First. Now, if that group sounds familiar, that's because it was one of the same groups that organized the rallies that led to the January 6th insurrection. Joining me now is former U.S. Attorney Joyce Vance and Fernanda Mondi, Democratic pollster and strategist out of the great state of Florida. Um, and uh, Joyce, let me start with you on this. Uh, so there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it, I feel like every day there's a new line of inquiry focused on Gates, whether it's paying for sex, the sex with a minor. There's this federal investigation that's scrutinizing this Bahamas trip. The New York Times reported the FBI's widened its investigation to include questions about whether a trip to the Bahamas he took uh, with Republican allies in Florida and women, quote, who were asked to provide sex for them. According to CBS, Gates was on a trip with a marijuana entrepreneur and hand surgeon named Jason Pirazzolo, who allegedly paid for the travel expenses, accommodations, and female escorts. Um, he hasn't been charged with anything as yet, but how much trouble do you think he might be in? There's an awful lot here, Joy, and, and the allegations aren't just of one crime. They're potentially of, of multiple different sorts of situations. It's hard to get a read because no charges have been filed of how seriously DOJ is taking this and, and where their emphasis is the greatest. But the real risk for Gates is that once the FBI starts looking, they're not constrained. This is no longer Trump world where the president yeah. can say, my personal finances are a red line, right? They can look at whatever they think is important 
The core of this, though, has to be any child sex crimes. DOJ takes that seriously. There's an entire division inside of the criminal division at Maine Justice called CIOS that focuses on child exploitation. So if those allegations pan out, if they can be proven with evidence, then Gates is in a lot of trouble there. Those charges carry some pretty heavy mandatory minimum sentencing uh, applications. And you're, you're seeing for our viewers, uh, there is Matt Gates giving this speech uh, at the Doral, uh, Trump's Doral Club. And Fernand, uh, from what my producers are explaining to me, he's doing sort of the usual thing. He already issued a fundraising email, fundraising off of this, calling it a hoax, sort of echoing Trumpy language, saying it's all just a big hoax. It's a partisan witch hunt. Uh, these are actions of a corrupt establishment. You can help to Trump and I fight back against the fake news media, sort of using the, the sort of usual lingo. Um, but tonight, uh, he's kind of repeating that and sort of saying he's going to keep fighting on. In Florida, is there a sense um, that people are, are distancing from him? Kind of what's the vibe about Gates um, in the state right now politically? Hey, hang on a second, Joy, because I'm going to throw up looking at Matt Gates standing in front of a Women for America first image on our screen. The shameless gall of these projecting hypocritical Republicans. Uh, look, I echo Joyce's comments. Matt Gates is in a lot of trouble. And having spoken to sources today that spoke to him directly, he knows it. He lawyered up today and he got some very high profile, big time criminal defense attorneys. He's also hired a crisis communications network because the big difference between this having happened today and six months ago is that Donald Trump is no longer there with a pardon uh, that Matt Gates was trying to finagle at the way out in the last days of the administration. But I think it's important that we take a step back here and really think about this in terms of not of Matt Gates because, you know, Matt Gates is the Florida scandal du jour. You know, every day there's something around Matt Gates, but every day there's something around Florida. And I think the way to really try and understand this is as follows. Thank God the American people, you know, eliminated the cancer that was in the White House. The problem is, is that has now been replaced in Florida and it's metastasizing here. The Republican project in the country is today being beta tested in the state of Florida, or as I call it, Magistan. And if you think about what is happening here, not just around Matt Gates, it's also centered around Ron DeSantis, who is now trying to engage and pay for play with vaccines. There's questions about the dubiousness of the state count. Rick Scott, the senior senator who was accused of the biggest Medicare fraud in American history, representing and now wants to run for president. Spineless Marco Rubio, you know, who wouldn't know a moment of character if it bit him in the, 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 the Cuban boots that he likes to wear every now and again. What, what we're seeing, Joy, again, is what happens if these Republicans run in a basically um, autocratic state with no legal impunity, with no accountability. And that is the big test for Matt Gates and for the state of Florida and for the United States, because if this succeeds, Magistan will become the United States of Magistan. And that's what we have to be extraordinarily careful about with these developments. Well, I mean, it's an important point. I mean, just today, what Trump did uh, endorse little Marco. He doesn't call him little Marco anymore, apparently, because he's not little anymore to him. Uh, but he endorsed him with all that Russia, Russia, Russia stuff. You've also got another Florida elections guy, Florida elections general counsel arrested on child porn charges. The top lawyer for Florida's commission that uh, investigates and prosecutes election law violations facing charges of possessing child pornography. It, it is sort of it feels like. Florida is kind of a cesspool right now. Um, but let me play—oh, um, and by the way, this Mr. Pizzolo, just a Pirazzolo, I should mention, 
Matt Gates had tried to get him to become the Surgeon General of Florida. So he would have been another one in, in office. Uh, let me play for you a little bit of what Matt Gates uh, was saying tonight in his little uh, uh, public appearance. The smears against me range from distortions of my personal life to wild, and I mean wild, conspiracy theories. I won't be intimidated by a lying media, and I won't be extorted by a former DOJ officials and the crooks he is working with. The truth will prevail. Joyce, uh, as, uh, as uh, Fernand mentioned, he has lawyered up with some pretty pricey lawyers. But would you advise somebody who is under, uh, you know, being scrutinized by the feds and, and under investigation to do a lot of talking? Might it be um, wiser for him to, I don't know, shut up? It's surprising that his lawyers let him continue on tonight to give this speech. I'm sure that they counseled him about what he could and couldn't say. Here's the real risk, Joy. If Matt Gates gets indicted and ends up going to trial, he will undoubtedly hear some of these public appearances, whether it's the Tucker Carlson interview or this speech he gives tonight. Prosecutors are going to play those back for the jury, and he will end up condemning himself out of his own mouth because many of the denials that he's now issuing will likely be stuff that prosecutors have plenty of evidence to prove if he's indicted and if they go to trial. This is dangerous. Gates's lawyers need to tell him to stay at home like everyone else during the pandemic yeah. and stay out of trouble. Indeed. And if you're being accused of, of, of you know, basically abusing a, a child sexually, you, you might just want to actually go quiet and take that seriously. Uh, Joyce Vance, Fernanda Mondi, thank you, friends. Have a wonderful weekend. Still ahead, conservative Democrats are hunting the mythical beast known as congressional bipartisanship. They're sure it's out there somewhere, even if the last known sighting was decades ago. But until they track it down, they'll happily serve as roadblocks to the entire Biden agenda. Former Obama speechwriter John Favreau joins me on that next. When it comes to legislation, President Biden said this week that inaction is not an option. But if Prime Minister Joe Manchin has his way, it's definitely going to be on the menu. Yesterday in The Washington Post, the Prince of Appalachia was unequivocal about his opposition to changing the filibuster. He also made it clear that he was done with budget reconciliation as a workaround for Democratic legislation. Senator Manchin wrote that the filibuster is a critical tool and there is no circumstance in which I will vote to eliminate or weaken the filibuster. The former member of ALEC, the shadowy free market organization, told CNN that the January 6th insurrection solidified his opposition. So something told me, wait a minute, pause, hit the pause button. Something's wrong. You can't have this many people split to where they want to go to war with each other. So seeing a horde of Trump fanatics lay siege to our Capitol made you want to work even more with the people who pandered to them in the Senate? I should remind you that Manchin has tried this act before. In 2013, he and Republican Pat Toomey tried to pass a watered-down gun bill, but it ultimately fell six votes short of 60. Now he's trying again, but this time with a Republican Party that's controlled by, as former senator, a former speaker of the House, John Boehner put it, a bunch of whack jobs. 
Manchin's not alone in his quixotic quest. Arizona Senator and one-time progressive Kristen Sinema also adamantly opposes changing the filibuster. Earlier this week, she told The Wall Street Journal, when you have a place that's broken and not working, I don't think the solution is to erode the rules. What the senators are choosing to ignore as they chase this mythical bipartisan beast is that the current batch of Senate Republicans have shown no interest in compromise. Just take, for example, the For the People Act, a bill that would expand voting rights, reduce the influence of money in politics and limit partisan gerrymandering. Here's a taste of what the Republicans think of the bill. This is the biggest power grab uh, since I've been in Congress. It will take away every state's ability to run free and fair elections. It is a profoundly dangerous bill. Everything about this bill is rotten to the core. This is a bill as if written and held by the devil himself. We reached out to Senators Manchin and Cinema, and we asked them to provide us with a list of the 10 Republicans who will vote for an infrastructure bill or a voting rights bill or really anything. And we got no response. We also invited both senators to defend their positions on this show. They declined. And so, Senators Manchin and Cinema, the No Progress Caucus, you two, you are tonight's absolute worst. And with me now is John Favreau, co-host of Pod Save America and former speechwriter for President Obama. And you tweeted something very similar to my feelings, which is, you know, Kristen Cinema's out there being like, I support H.R. 1. I'm all for that. I, I'm like, show me your 10 senators then. You and Manchin put out a list. Show me your 10 senators. I defy them to do it because I don't think there are two. I think uh, President Biden and and Chuck Schumer sort of need to do that, too. They need to invite them to, like, you know, come up with your version of this legislation that would attract 10 Republican senators and then show me who those senators are. Because if you can't do that, then the then the people that are the source of gridlock in Washington aren't necessarily those Republican senators. It's you two, because you both have the power to pass through this legislation, which, by the way, has broad bipartisan support throughout the country. Uh, Crooked Media, we did a poll with uh, Change Research, and we found that something like between 70 and 80 percent of people support the For the People Act. They overwhelmingly support some of the specific provisions, which, by the way, some of those provisions are about taking the partisanship out of politics, right? Just, for example, on gerrymandering, right? Right now, you have partisan gerrymandering where the party in charge of the statehouse can draw congressional districts and essentially pick their voters. The H.R. 1 bill for the People Act would make sure that there's an independent nonpartisan commission. So if Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema like bipartisanship and don't want partisanship in their politics and in elections, they should want to pass the For the People Act. I, you know, I, I, I hate to, I, I'm a skeptic, so I just don't know that I believe them when they say they're for these bills. I'm sorry, Joe Manchin, his state is poor. It's largely white and very poor. There are a lot of people who are sort of locked in the coal industry with sort of no upward mobility beyond that. And I find it hard to believe him when he says that he's for a bill that would actually change that and make their lives better. Because if you're for it, you'd pass it. And you can pass it because there are enough Democrats. They have to show me that they believe in any of these bills. Um, To your very point, there's a morning console poll that shows 65 percent of all voters strongly or somewhat support the infrastructure plan, which would help West Virginia, would help Arizona. 42% of Republicans support it. The Gallup poll shows that Republican identification is at a low, not seen since 2012. Only 40% of adults identified as Republican or Republican-leaning. It's a nine-point difference. Right now, the Republican Party is extremely unpopular, but these senators are saying they only care about protecting Republican senators not Republican voters. I don't know how you get through to people like that. I do think on the uh, American Jobs Plan, 
that Joe Manchin is just trying to like make us go through a routine right now, right? Like he wants to get caught trying. He, you know, he complained about the reconciliation process in the, that op-ed. He did not draw the same line in the sand on reconciliation as he did on the filibuster. Fortunately, um, he did say he just doesn't he doesn't prefer reconciliation, um, but he wants to go through the motions of you know bringing the Republican senators to the White House, trying to compromise, and then when the Republicans inevitably say that they don't want to compromise with the White House because they don't really support infrastructure or a jobs bill, then perhaps Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema can say, okay, we tried bipartisanship, it didn't work, so now we can go through reconciliation. At least that's my hope um, and, and read in the situation so far. But you're right, it is uh, yet again, we have another very broadly popular bill um, in the American Jobs Plan that is bipartisan in nature because a whole bunch of Republican voters like it. Yeah. So it should be yeah. right up Joe Manchin's alley and Kirsten Sinema's alley. You would think. Uh, let me play John Boehner because you were you were speechwriter for President Obama during the era when John Boehner was speaker. I remember asking President Obama, do you really think that Boehner wants to work with you or do you think that he's just lying to you? And he, he sincerely yeah. did believe Boehner wanted to, but he was like hostage to this group of like Tea Partiers. Here's John Boehner on CBS Sunday Morning. You call some of these members political terrorists. Oh, yeah. Jim Jordan, especially my colleague from Ohio. I just never saw a guy who spent more time tearing things apart and never building anything, never putting anything together. And then there's Senator Ted Cruz, who Boehner says is the ultimate false prophet. I don't beat anybody up. It's not really my style. Except that jerk. Perfect symbol. You know, of... Uh, Getting elected, make a lot of noise, draw a lot of attention to yourself, raise a lot of money, which means you're going to go make more noise, raise more money. And uh, uh, it's really, it's unfortunate. Wait, before I get to my question, this is one more clip. This is my favorite clip ever of John Boehner. Like, please play number five, please. <laughs> Take it from me. You'll never know where you'll end up. That's freedom. I'll raise a glass to that any day. P.S. Ted Cruz, go f*** yourself. <laughs> it's not even part of the book. Ten years from now, or twenty years from now, or whatever, when our uh, when our current uh, Senate Majority Leader retires and writes a book, are we, is he going to be saying the same things about Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema? Because it feels like he is as hostage to them as Boehner was hostage to the Tea Partiers. That's uh, that's my new ringtone, by the way. Is that last clip of uh, of John Boehner? Um, <laughs> it's the only clip you no, need. I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember that President Obama used to tell us a story, which is uh, when they were trying to do immigration reform, he you know spent a lot of time talking to John Boehner, and John Boehner said, "Look, I actually want to do immigration reform. I want to pass this bill. I want to work with you on it. My caucus doesn't want to. I have a bunch of people in my caucus who are just don't like immigrants. They're they're very against immigration reform, and if I push them on it." they will oust me as speaker and they'll elect someone as speaker who is more right wing than me. So I want to work with you, but I'm just stuck. And that was the dynamic, even though a lot of people in the Obama era said, oh, if only Obama goes to drinks and plays golf right. with John Boehner more and Mitch McConnell, yeah. everything will get done. But John Boehner and Mitch McConnell were basically telling him like, no, we're not going to work with you because our caucus doesn't want, want us to and our base is radicalized. 
Well, and not only that, but the person that people, you know, even including in the media, were demanding that President Obama have uh, dinner with. Today, he flipped out about Biden just having a commission to study expanding the court. Uh, today's announcement is a direct assault on our nation's independence judiciary. This is just another example. Like, like he literally loses his crap because he wants to be able to stuff the judiciary with who he wants in it. So last piece of advice uh, to uh, Chuck Schumer. Um, the one thing I used to say about Boehner is that Boehner should say to those Tea Partiers, keep playing with me. I'm going to go to that lady, Nancy Pelosi, and she's going to get me the 40 votes you won't give me. You will be irrelevant. Are there a couple of Republicans, Suzanne Murkowski, somebody that Schumer could go to and eliminate the importance of cinema and mansion? Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In your view. I think... I think the challenge there is Mansion and cinema have gotten really tight with Collins and Murkowski. Like all of these, some of the more moderate Republicans, if you want to call them moderate, has sort of joined forces with cinema and Mansion and some of these more moderate Democrats. And, you know, they're trying to schedule this gang of 20. They haven't even been able to schedule the meeting yet with the gang of 20 who's supposedly trying to save the Senate, uh, which which bodes well for that. But um, I do think that they're all very cozy with each other. But I, it, look, if I was Chuck Schumer, I would. I would challenge Manchin and Sinema to say, OK, you want this bipartisan. You want 60 votes. Show me the 60 votes and show me the piece of legislation that gets 60 votes. And, you know, I'm willing to compromise. But if you can't do that, then we're just going to have gridlock. And, and the American people, both Democrats and Republicans, are going to be very upset that nothing got done in Washington. And whose fault is that going to be? Yeah, it's going to be theirs. And, and by the way, the piece of legislation that would pass would be a voting bill that guarantees that, that Republicans always win elections. That's the only thing that they would actually sign on to. Right, John exactly. Thank you very much for being here, man. Have a great weekend. Appreciate you. All right. And up Thanks. next, Don Lemon. Don Lemon is going to be here to talk about his best-selling new book. And we will get his reaction to Tucker Carlson's outrageous defense of replacement theory. You won't want to miss that. George Floyd did not have to die. The ongoing trial of Derek Chauvin has made that very clear. And it was made very clear in this new book by Don Lemon. This is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism. And in it, CNN anchor Don Lemon writes about Floyd's death in deeply personal terms. The book opens with a James Baldwin style letter to his nephew written on the day George Floyd was killed. May 25th, 2020. Dear Trishad, today I heard a dying man call out to his mama and I wept for the world that will soon belong to you. He goes on to add, watching this shocking footage, I and every other black man I know saw the insensibly sluggish murder of ourselves in agonized real time. I saw Blue Holiday's strange, Billy Holiday's strange fruit hanging from the poplar tree. I had to close my door and cry. CNN anchor and my friend Don Lemon joins me now, author of This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. You can see how nervous I am interviewing on TV because you're also one of my idols. So uh, in addition to being my oh, friends, you said I flood the intro, but you know I love you, Don. Okay, let's no, talk about this. No, no, Joy, I know how it is that whenever I interview someone I know, I get really nervous for some reason, and I don't know why because I want to be— I don't 
I wanted to be perfect for them. You know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And I, I should just call you and redo the intro for you. It's going to be brilliant when it's on the phone. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk about this trial because you cover it. I yeah. cover it. We cover it every day. Yeah. You write so beautifully in this book, opening talking about the George Floyd, the the, the murder of George Floyd. And you talk in this book about, you know, what the subtitles, what I say to my friends about racism. What do you say to your friends about this trial? Uh, I say that it is it has been deeply emotional. Uh, it is traumatic. And I, I think we all are reliving it over and over and over every time we see that video. And as you know, when we're putting together our shows, uh, there is this this thing that we do in our head about how much of that video to show, how much of it is exploitative and how much of it is necessary to to educate and inform the audience. But it is it is that it is that video. The video is the reason that we're here as a nation. And I think the video is the reason that we are um, at this inflection point in society now, because we were all sitting last summer in our homes in quarantine with nothing to do but watch George Floyd's death over and over and over so yeah. um, I think it's just it's trauma that we keep re-experiencing. And can you imagine being the family in that courtroom? No, not at all. And, you know, this book yeah. is brilliant. I'm going to let you all know that not only is Don Lemon brilliant on television, a great journalist, you're also a brilliant writer. It's beautifully written. And, you know, you talk very frankly about white supremacy and you get a lot of, you get in a lot of trouble for it. I get in a lot of trouble for yeah. it. Talking about white supremacy openly. And I think it's the way to do it, to be blunt about it. But you write about the system of white supremacy um, and you say that you're not talking about cartoon white supremacy, hooded villains marching with ropes and torches, but the entrenched socioeconomic system that statistically favors white consumers, white businesses, white stories, white iconography. How do you talk across the racial divide about race in a way that gets folks who are not black or not people of color to understand that? Well, I think, uh, honestly, I think I do a good job of it in the book, but I do believe, I think you're, it's right, you're right, Joy, is that you just have to do it. We cannot be more concerned about um, grievance, right? That people are become aggrieved by the possibility that they may have a racial blind spot, to put it mildly, or they may have some unconscious bias, to put it in the middle, or they just may, in fact, be bigoted or racist, which is the, the most extreme. The more important thing is the actual act of racism itself. And so I think once you get people to understand that, um, that they should take more stock in the actual act of something— than the possibility that someone may think that they are something. And that's hard to get across. But I think if you're honest with people and if you have relationships with them, if you um, experience their humanity, then you're able to, to have those conversations. I know people always say it's very difficult. And uh, quite honestly, especially white people, they say it's very difficult to have these conversations are difficult. I don't want someone to think that I'm a racist. Well, initially, they may be difficult, but after a while, especially if you have a friend and if you're white who looks like me or you, looks different than you, and you have, you, you, um, they can rely on you to be honest and you have trust and support, then the conversations become easier and easier and easier, and then they flow like water, and you don't have to worry about someone deeming you to be racist or something, you know, that you would rather not be called. It just yeah. be becomes about the experience and making it better. We're not going to fix it. Never. We're not yeah. going to fix sexism, any of it, but we can make it better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have to show you this because speaking of that, I mean, there are a lot of people who are getting what they think is news from shows that themselves consider themselves yeah. entertainment and not news. And so I want to play for you just a little bit of Tucker Carlson. Um, he did something that I thought was clarifying. I'm kind of glad he did it. He just openly embraced this thing called replacement theory, which is a lot of the fears that 
white Americans have that the browning of America, the fact that more anchors look like you and me, the fact that they're seeing more black and brown and, and LGBT and different people in public life means they're just being replaced as sort of the core American. And he just went out and said it. He just he just embraced this theory last night. Here he is. I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots, mm. with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's, that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. So I don't mm. understand why we don't understand this. I mean, everyone wants to make a racial issue out of it. Ooh, the you know, white replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? So he said that on Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, you know, the Republican Party, who people who watch the show, 81 percent of Republican voters are white, according to Pew Research Center. Fifty nine percent of Democratic voters are white. Um, the uh, the uh, Anti-Defamation League, the leader of it, called that white supremacist um, and called for him to resign, um, to be to, they're saying he Tucker must go for saying that. When we live in a country where that kind of rhetoric is extremely popular with a lot of people and people embrace it, to go back to your book, how do you talk to folks about racism when they're taking in that kind of content? But that's the, he is in fact promoting that he is doing. It's no different than what the the lawmaker I'm sure you reported from Mississippi said about woke college voters that they you know shouldn't be registering uh, woke college voters. Um, it is what Professor Robert Pape says from the University of Chicago about the people who actually um, were the insurrectionists on January 6th, that they weren't Proud Boys or mostly neo-Nazis, that they were just most regular Americans who were concerned about this replacement thing. So I, I think that you, again, you can't coddle people. There are people, there are people who can change and who want to go along and who want, don't want to move the country back to a, a place and a time um, where we did not have equality and equity for marginalized people, for people of color and for women. And that that is what Tucker is promoting there. So I think you've got to be honest with people. If you start, yeah. Joy, as I do, from the history of this country, teaching the right history of this country, then I think we will we will be operating on a place of truth and you won't get insurrectionists and you won't get people thinking that replacement, this replacement, whole replacement thing is something that needs to be promoted. You've got to start with honesty. Got to start with the history and the honesty. The book is called This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. It's a brilliant book. All right, Don Lemon is not going anywhere. It's a hostage situation right now. <laughs> oh, wait. Because up next, I'm going to oh. ask him my favorite Friday question and yours. Who won the week? Stay with us. A few more minutes. <laughs> well, folks, we made it to Friday, so you know, that that, you know what that means. It's time to play Who Won the Week? Uh, for me, it is Martin Tobin from uh, the yep. Chauvin trial, who is an expert in pulmonology and who who talked about how George Floyd had the life really um, squeezed out of him. He and I, I think he did it with even though he's a medical doctor, he brought us yeah. he did it in humane terms. And we got to see the humanity of George Floyd through it. He was brilliant. Well, testimony. Uh I was going to pick the versus zaddies because they came out and became like stars on versus. But I decided 
Not going to be the versus Eddie. This is going to be Don Lemon. You won the week, my friend, because earlier this week, uh, last week with our friend Tamron Hall, you talked about you and Tim starting a family. So not oh only do you win by starting a family, there you are. That's your engagement party. There's adorable Tim. That's his sister. But I'll be your babysitter. Who doesn't love that? Thank you, Don Lemon. That's tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.